doll. Hey, doll. This is your host, Paula. And I'm your host, Cynthia. And we are Dolls Dolls and and Doom. Doom. Today, I'm going to tell you about the murder of Diane Fossey and her beautiful gorillas. Okay, so Paula, you know how you have those sad moments from childhood that really stick with you? Almost as if they woke up this part of your brain that up until that moment was maybe a little naive or innocent? Yes, totally. Okay, well, it probably sounds like I'm about to unload some deep, dark childhood traumas. Uh (laughs) (laughs) Uh-oh. I promise I'm not going to. Honestly, for me, these moments are relatively benign compared to what many people have been exposed to. But I do have a couple of childhood memories that stick out to me as they were just my first taste of the world not always being a nice place. One of these moments happened when I was on a family vacation as a child. I remember a long day of driving and I couldn't tell you where we were going or where we had been, but I can tell you what the hotel room looked like. We were winding down for the evening and flipping through the TV stations to find something interesting to watch when we landed on a movie with some really cute baby gorillas. Now The movie was more than halfway through and I can guarantee you that my parents had no clue at the time what we were watching because they always protected us from anything disturbing, any scary sights or sounds, but this seems safe enough. What can go wrong when you have a movie with baby gorillas and the beautiful Sigourney Weaver? A lot, Paula. (laughs) A lot can go wrong. Oh, no. Somehow, between baths and teeth brushing, we must have missed the part of the movie showing that these gorgeous gorillas were being poached. And I just happened to exit the bathroom just in time for my innocent little eyes to land on a close-up of Digit the most lovable and human-like of all of these gorillas, sitting up against a tree, decapitated with his hands cut off. Oh my God. The poachers had killed him and were going to use his hands for ashtrays. God, that's so barbaric. It really is. And that moment both scarred me for life and ignited a passion in me that would last a lifetime. For years after that, when we would go to Blockbuster Video on the weekends to rent a movie... I would want to watch Gorillas in the Mist. Now, finally, my sister and my cousin told me that they were never going to watch that movie again as it, quote, made them feel sick, end quote. And obviously it made me feel sick too, but for all the right reasons. This movie was the true story of a woman who left her home and everyone she knew and moved to the mountains of Africa to save these endangered gorillas. And she ultimately paid for it with her life. So before Diane Fossey, gorillas had a pretty bad rap. They were made out to be these violent beasts that would kill any human in sight. Think King Kong or that movie Congo. Well, Diane Fossey first traveled to Africa in 1963, and while there, she met renowned paleoanthropologist Louis Leakey. He specialized in studying the fossils of our ancestors, but felt that in order to really understand humans, he would have to understand our closest relatives, the apes. Leakey had already helped another female researcher. Um, you might recognize her name, Jane Goodall. 
Oh, yes. I know Jean Goodall. <laughs> yes. Well, she studies chimpanzees, so he felt it was time to do something similar for gorillas. So three years after meeting her, Leakey hired Fossey to study the mountain gorillas in the Democratic Republic of Congo. This was not a safe place for gorillas or humans due to a lot of conflict in the country, and she was ultimately forced to leave. So she ended up setting up a small research outpost in Rwanda and called it the Karasoki Research Center. Now, this center was really just a few rustic cabins that sat high in the volcanic Virunga Mountains. So how does a woman get close to wild gorillas that no one had ever gotten close to before? She told the BBC that, quote, I am an inhibited persona, and I felt that the gorillas were somewhat inhibited as well, so I imitated their natural, normal behavior, like feeding, munching on celery stalks, or scratching myself, end quote. She would also mimic beating on her chest like they did and making their belch-like calls, and it worked. Now, this process is called habituation, where you literally just become part of their habitat. Over time, the gorillas were not bothered by her. She was able to go sit with them for hours, learning who belonged to which family, and she especially enjoyed learning what the silverback male in each family did. So these male gorillas develop a silver streak down their backs as they get older, and that, of course, is how they get their name. And it is most often the patriarch who is the leader of each gorilla family. Now, getting to know each other was a slow process. Diane sat with these gorillas for years, but eventually the relationship between ape and human turned into a friendship. Ian Redman, a friend of Diane's, who worked very closely with her for over three years, said that the gorillas were as interested in them as they were in the gorillas. These gorillas would come over and pull down their lips and look at their teeth. And he said they were very curious about, quote, this gorilla-like animal that does such different things, end quote. That's so cute. I can totally see it. Isn't that adorable? Yes. They're, they're so human-like. Yeah. They're so... So smart. They are. I adore them. In 1970, only three years after starting this work, Fossey appeared on the cover of National Geographic magazine. Here she stated that after more than 2,000 hours of direct observation, she could account for less than five minutes of what could be called aggressive behavior. So she really woke the world up to these amazing animals. For the first time ever, gorillas were captured on film, and people were able to actually see for themselves just how sweet and human-like these creatures actually are. Her efforts really caused people to have an interest in gorilla conservation on a global level. But unfortunately, like most of the cases we discuss here on Dolls and Doom, not everyone was as excited about Diane Fossey and her endeavors. So I think it's pretty fair to say that Diane Fossey was a brave, tough lady. How many people do you know that would move alone to Africa in the middle of a civil war to live on a volcano surrounded by animals that up until that point were considered to be dangerous killers? Zero, unless I'm counting you. I can totally see you doing that. <laughs> you know what's funny is I've always said that if I lived a different life, if I didn't have kids, if I wasn't married, I could totally see myself doing this. Yeah. Absolutely. I can too. But other than me, and it's hysterical that you say that, I was not expecting that. <laughs> um, I don't know anyone who would ever do such a thing. And as you can imagine, this takes a special kind of personality and at least when it came to humans, companionship and comfort were not Diane's strong suit. 
It was well known that she preferred being alone. It was reported that she was not a very easy person to live or work with and that she could be incredibly charming one day but hostile the next. Now I personally think sometimes that this type of personality is just what it takes and I'm just going to say it. Women have made incredible advances and I like to think that most people now know that we are as capable as any man at handling ourselves. But this was the 60s and 70s, where a woman living alone in such circumstances was probably not considered as acceptable as it would be now. Right. Back then, there was definitely something wrong with her, if that was her lifestyle. It it was definitely not the typical way of living. So unfortunately, over the years, Fosse developed emphysema, which caused her to struggle and be short of breath. So by the early 1970s, she was not able to spend as much time with the gorillas as she would have liked but she still remained in full control of the research camp. Now, one of the things she had to do in this position was deal with poachers. Keep in mind, these poachers were usually native to the area, and this was how they made a living. They would take the head and hands of gorillas and sell them as trinkets. Or if they could get their hands on a baby gorilla, which would always require killing its parents, then they could turn around and sell that baby, who, side note, would almost always get sick and die. Now, obviously, I don't agree with any of this. However, I do like to think that most people do the best they can with what they can. And here we have a country in the middle of a civil war, lots of unrest. And for the sake of giving the benefit of the doubt, I'm going to assume that most of these poachers were just doing what they felt they had to in order to get by. But Fosse was determined to stop the poaching at any cost. She was known to capture, some might say kidnap, anyone who she caught poaching and sometimes these poachers were just kids. Then she would interrogate them while wearing scary face masks and pretending to use black magic. The locals thought she was a witch and she tried her very best to give them plenty of reason to be afraid of her. I love that about her. (laughs) Me too. Me too. And if you've seen the movie Gorillas in the Mist, which is based off of a book that Diane Fossey wrote, oh Sigourney Weaver portrays this so beautifully yes she does it's amazing now at one point diane allegedly wrote in a letter to her friend quote we stripped him and spread eagled him and lashed the holy blue sweat out of him with nettle stalks and leaves end quote talking about one of the poachers she captured so she definitely was extreme yes definitely Now, there are even some reports that she may have kidnapped poachers' children and held them for ransom in an effort to scare people away from the gorillas that she loved. Diane's friend Kelly Stewart, a fellow primatologist, said, quote, When I first got there, she was mercurial, but already angry. She was in warrior mode and fighting mode. Her love for gorillas and her hatred of poachers really colored her behavior, and some people think it eventually got in the way of rational management of the research center, end quote. It was said that Diane's conflict with the poachers grew to such proportions that it overshadowed some of her other efforts. While the number of her enemies rose, gorilla numbers continued to decline, and on New Year's Eve, 1977, things got much, much worse worse. Among all of the gorillas she habituated, Diane had a favorite. His name was Digit. She named him that because he had a deformed finger. 
and she had watched him grow up, and for whatever reason, she just felt an extra special connection with this particular silverback. But on this day, in 1977, when he was only 12 years old, poachers brutally killed Digit as he tried to defend his family. He was found shortly after he was killed, decapitated with his hands cut off. They were reportedly sold for about $20. That's horrible. Disgusting. His body was brought back to camp where he was buried, and Fossey wrote in a 1981 article in National Geographic, quote, The mutilated body, head and hands hacked off as grisly trophies, lay limp in the brush like a bloody sack. For me, this killing was probably the saddest event in all of my years of sharing the daily lives of Mountain Gorilla, end quote. It was this scene, depicted on a hotel room TV screen sometime in the late 80s or early 90s, that would be burned into a little girl's brain and possibly even ignite both her interest and disgust in true crime. Now, Diane was so disturbed over the murder of Digit that the already private and reclusive woman began spending even more time in her own cabin, drinking and smoking until she finally spiraled into a deep depression. Only six months after Digit's death, his family was attacked once again, and this time two other gorillas were killed while their infant was injured by a bullet wound and later died due to his injuries. The male gorilla was Uncle Bert, the family's dominant silverback. And gorilla families really rely heavily on their leaders, and his death was destructive to Digit's family. The baby gorilla, Quelly, was buried between his mother and father, right next to Digit. All three adult gorillas died in an effort to save his life. So now Diane is breathing fire, and rightly so. But she's mad at everyone. She suspected the local government may have had something to do with these killings. She thought that they may have wanted a dramatic story for the world to respond to. So she even suspicioned the authorities had been instructed to kill a gorilla to gain sympathy and funding from conservationalists. And while Digit's death did increase funding, the majority of the money went to other conservation efforts instead of ending poaching, which really upset Diane. In the early 1960s, there were about 475 individual Virunga mountain gorillas, but those numbers were dropping, and by the early 1980s, that number dropped to about 254 gorillas. Now, Diane at this point was angry at the world. She was in the thick of it, literally living in the forest with these animals while conservationalists were spending money on education. But Diane wasn't seeing the changes she wanted where it mattered, right here in the forest, in these gorilla families. She grew to be mistrusting towards all Rwandans. It was said that she could not even see that these people who were part of the problem could ever be part of the solution. Others around Diane knew that in order to save the gorillas, Fossey would need all the help she could get, including from some of the native Rwandans and the authorities who she hated. The day after Christmas, in 1985, Ian Redmond came to see Diane in her cabin, where he found her body, face up, which had been hacked to death with a machete. Holy cow! She was laying just a few feet away from her bed, and there was a hole in the wall that had been cut into the side of the cabin, presumably so that her murderer could enter. The attack had happened very recently, as Redmond noticed bloodstains still dripping onto the carpet. 
Diane's research assistant, Wayne Richard McGuire, was summoned to the scene, and as he went to check her vitals, he noticed that her face had been split with what appeared to be one machete blow. He would later say that he believed the entire murder investigation was poorly handled. He said there was no crime scene approach. People were coming and going, tromping around, damaging any kind of footprints or evidence that might have been left behind. Now, Diane's cabin had been ransacked. There was broken glass and overturned furniture throughout, but it didn't appear that any valuables had been taken because her passport, her gun, and thousands of dollars in U.S. bills and traveler's checks were still there. Fosse was reported to have slept with this gun near her at all times, and there it was, a 9mm handgun and ammunition laying beside her on the floor. So who would have wanted Diane Fosse dead? Uh, A lot of people. (laughs) (laughs) Right, for sure. Now, of course, the first thought is poachers. Right. Um, But the people who worked at the center say that that couldn't have been possible. Poachers were just local hunters, and they'd lived this way for decades, doing what they'd been taught to do by their fathers and their fathers. And any earnings they received were used to provide for their families. They knew that what they were doing was illegal and that many people were on a mission to stop them. So Diane's friends believed they would have stayed completely out of sight, never daring to enter the conservation center. They were a rural people with limited means and would not have known the camp well enough to have been a threat to Diane. Some people believe that gold smugglers killed Diane. The research center lies near Rwanda's border with the Democratic Republic of Congo and Uganda, and these are areas that have a lot of unrest. It was a route often traveled by smugglers, and there are reports that Diane may have had some information on these people that could have made her a target. Fozzie's entire staff was ultimately arrested in connection with her murder, including a local Rwandan man named Emmanuel Rilikana. Fozzie's former tracker, who had been fired when he allegedly attempted to kill Fozzie with a machete on a previous occasion. All of her staff were eventually released except for this man, who was found having hung himself in prison. The Rwandan courts later tried and convicted Wayne McGuire, that man who had tried to look for, um, you know, vitals on her. Wayne was a graduate student who had come to the research center to develop his thesis in the parental behavior of male gorillas. But he ended up leaving Africa right before his trial after being told by the U.S. government that if he stayed, he would be arrested. So he was ultimately tried. This was a 40-minute trial. And he was trialed in absentia, which means that he was not present. The alleged motive was that McGuire had murdered Diane to steal the manuscript of the sequel to her 1983 book, Gorillas in the Mist, upon which that movie I watched in the hotel room was based. And I mentioned it before, but it's a great movie and a really, really great book. It's hard to read. It's disturbing. But if you think you can stomach it, you should check it out. During McGuire's trial, prosecutors alleged that McGuire was unhappy with his own field research and he was willing to steal Diane's in order to complete his work. As evidence, the government said a laboratory analysis of hair found clenched in Fosse's hand at the time of her death belonged to a white person and McGuire was the only white person at the research center that night. McGuire returned to the United States in July of 1987 
but there's no extradition treaty between the U.S. and Rwanda, so McGuire, of course, never returned to Rwanda, and this was a smart choice on his part, as his sentence was death by shooting. When he returned to the U.S., he gave a brief statement at a news conference saying that Diane had been his friend and mentor, and that he called her death tragic and the charges outrageous. From that point on, McGuire was never really seen in the public eye. Over the years, he did accept a job with the Health and Human Services Division of the state of Nebraska, but the job offer was ultimately revoked upon discovery of his relation to the Fosse case. Now, many people close to Diane said that they were surprised she was not killed earlier, given the many enemies she had made over the years and the fact that this is a very violent part of the world. In life, Diane's big fear was a world with no mountain gorillas left in it. A year after her death, a consensus was done that revealed that mountain gorilla numbers were slowly but steadily increasing. Today, mountain gorillas are believed to be one of the few apes whose numbers are not in decline. They are still critically endangered, but numbers are trending upwards. In November 2015, an annual naming ceremony celebrated the birth of 24 new baby mountain gorillas, and in 2018, a census revealed a total count for the subspecies to 1,069 gorillas. The last entry in Diane Fossey's diary read, quote, When you realize the value of all life, you dwell less on what is past and concentrate more on the preservation of the future. End quote. Fossey was buried in the Virunga Mountains, where she spent 18 years of her life. Next to her lies beloved Digit. I know she would want that. Absolutely. God, that's so heartbreaking. It is. And she was just such a special person, and I just admire her so much. She did such great work. Yes, she did. Her case uh, remains unsolved. Technically, I mean, they have a conviction, but it's considered unsolved. Right. A 40-minute murder trial. Wow. Probably the shortest in history. They do things a little differently, I guess, that we do here. But, yeah, that's the case. That's insane. And it was such a violent act. So I think it was somebody that was extremely angry with what she was doing. Very, it was very violent. It could be anybody. It could be the authorities. It could have been poachers, of course, smugglers. I mean, she really stood up for what she believed in and a lot of people would disagree with maybe the way she did it but she did she had a lot of enemies and unfortunately right and it is a very violent part of the world i mean she was able to kidnap people and hold them for ransom with no penalty for that so the rules of what you are are not able to do or i guess a lot looser in the mountains in I, Africa? and I guess so. I'm so happy to know that gorilla numbers are going up. and Definitely. Hopefully one day they won't be endangered anymore. I hope so. They're such beautiful creatures. Have you, have you ever seen them in person? Obviously, probably not in Africa, but like at a no. zoo or anything. At a zoo, definitely, yes. They're my favorite. They're so incredible. They are. They're, and here's the thing. This, okay, so this is another ape. There's this story, Paula, that broke my heart. So you've, I'm sure, seen the videos of, like, Coco the gorilla, who they taught sign language to. So these are very, very smart creatures. They're so similar to us. And um, they've taught these different apes 
sign language and other ways to communicate with us. And there was this one, I believe this was a chimpanzee, not a gorilla in this particular story. But there was this one chimpanzee that had been taught sign language and she was very close to this one particular trainer. She was her preferred trainer and over the course of several years this particular chimpanzee kept having stillborn babies she wasn't able to have a healthy baby and she really wanted one and they found that these animals sometimes really crave babies they have maternal hearts maternal instincts their family you know they hang out in families so she she lost several babies then her trainer this trainer that she was close to had a late-term miscarriage and so she took some time off obviously from working and when she came back to work with this chimpanzee the chimpanzee was cold to her and was like not warm you know what I mean it, like the, like the friendship had been severed to an extent okay. and through sign language the trainer it's gonna make me tear up the trainer told the chimpanzee what had happened that she had lost her baby and the chimpanzee responded, of course, in a very chimpanzee-like way, but through sign language, that she had lost a baby too. And at that point, she comforted the trainer oh. and the relationship was repaired. Oh, gosh. Talk about heartwarming. These are what we call animals. That's what kind of, I think when people think of things like that, like when we put ourselves in a place where we're able to open our minds and see that, yeah, we may be able to speak a language and build buildings and do all these things that we can do. But when you look at these other creatures that live in this world, you know, they have feelings, they love, they have families, they can communicate with us. And it's just amazing to me that some people can't see that. I agree. I really feel like animals are more compassionate than most people. For sure. I mean, there's very few, if any, animals that will kill just for the sake of killing. I think there's one or two. So I can't say none. But most of them, you know, if they're going to kill something, it's to eat it or... Right. The circle of life. Right. Not us, man. No. So yeah, that's that's the story of Diane Fossey, one of my heroes. Wow. That is such a good story. Heartbreaking, though, but... Heartbreaking. You want to hear something weird? Yeah. So a few months ago, my boyfriend showed me this thing on Google Maps that a car was in the water and it was so spooky. I looked it up and here's what happened. A man named Jerry Nyman, who worked for the Palm Beach County School District, was using Google Maps as part of his job. He was in the transportation department and he would use Google Maps daily to map out the safest way for kids to walk to school or get to a bus stop. Jerry was looking at the map of a neighborhood of an ex-girlfriend who lived there with her two daughters a subdivision called Grand Isle in Wellington, Florida. Everything weird happens in Florida, right? (laughs) Totally. It's the heat. (laughs) It is. Makes you crazy. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, he noticed what looked like a car submerged in a retention pond. Still on good terms with his ex, Erica, he texted her and asked her jokingly if she was stashing cars in the pond. He asked her to go and see if she could see anything. She went, but up close, the water was so murky and greenish-brown, it was hard to see anything in the water. Police were called, and sure enough, there was a car, and it was pulled out. Erica even filmed on her phone as the police broke the driver's side window, and guess what they found? Oh my gosh, what? Skeletal remains (gasps) of a man in the driver's seat. Oh, I just got chills. (laughs) Right? 
So he saw this on Google Maps? Yeah, and he just enlarged it, and sure enough, it was a car. And then he texted his ex, who happened to be in that neighborhood, like, hey, can you go check this out? Who was it? Do we know who it was in the car? Actually, we do. So it was a man named William Moult who went missing on November 7th, 1997. So back then, William had gone out with some friends. He was a 40-year-old mortgage broker who rarely drank. He called his girlfriend about 9 p.m. to let her know he would be home soon. He left the club before midnight and did not seem to be drunk. Back in 97, the subdivision where his car was found was still under construction. So it's completely possible that he drove into the water without seeing where he was headed. The car was heavily calcified and looked to have been underwater a very long time. It was actually visible on Google Maps since 2007, but no one noticed the car until 2019. After being sent to the medical examiner's office, the skeletal remains were confirmed to be William Earl Moult, solving a cold case 22 years later. So keep your eyes peeled because you never know what you're going to see. Holy cow. Isn't that crazy? So he just never came home one night and the family never knew what happened. Right. It was just a cold case. Never found him. That's crazy. Yeah. You know, it's very strange about this, and I don't have all the details, but when I was a child, I remember my dad telling me he had, like, a far-off relative. So I don't think it's anybody I would have ever met. I don't even know if it's somebody he would have met, who one day, um, I think he worked in construction, and he was driving home. He worked long hours, and he, he just never came home. And for years, the family had no idea what happened to him. Did he... Did he run away? Did he get murdered? There was no sign of him, no car, nothing. He just disappeared off the face of the earth. And many, many years later, um, right off of I-4, they were draining a retention pond. And they found his car with him in it. Oh, my God. And he'd driven into the retention pond in the middle of the night. And, of course, this was way before, like, you know, cameras everywhere. Right. Before all of those things. That's where he's been. That's crazy. Right. Solving the case. So it's that's weird that that does happen. It really does. And it's funny because my boyfriend loves The Office and we've been listening to The Office Ladies podcast. <laughs> Me too. Love you girls. You're awesome. <laughs> oh, yes. So there's an episode where Michael Scott, he's listening to his GPS and it tells him, you know, turn left. And Dwight's <laughs> like, no, don't turn left. There's a pond. He's like, well, I have to do what the directions say. So he ends up driving into a pond and... At first, people were like, no, that's going to seem too crazy of a story. No one's going to believe that someone's going to drive into a retention pond. But after some research, there's a ton of stories of people doing what the directions say and turning into water or maybe not realizing that it's water because they're going down like a dirt road and all of a sudden you're in water. Absolutely. It happens a lot more than you think it does. It does. It does. And fortunately, I think most people are probably able to escape. Yes. Like Michael Scott and Dwight. But right. It's just a few feet deep, but still. Yeah. Ooh, that's... Ooh, it gives me the chills. You're going to have to show me this photo. Oh, definitely. Ooh, creepy. Yeah. All right. Good tidbit, Paula. Thanks. Yeah. Good story, Cynthia. Oh, thanks. <laughs> well, thanks for listening, everybody. We really appreciate it. If you will follow us on Facebook, on Instagram. Hit like and subscribe and tell your friends. Yes, we sure would appreciate it. We hope to bring you a new episode every Friday. That's right. Stick around. That's right. (laughs) All right. Bye. Bye.